Okay, today I'm at uh, Toe HQ in the heart of theatre land with Jamie Benton. Thanks very much, Jamie, for uh, taking some time <laughs> out to speak to me. Not at um, all. So you're Benton, the man that the tote punters all need to beat. And for those <laughs> that don't know, tell us all about it. Yeah, well, it, it's, a, it's an initiative we started a couple of years ago uh, where we just basically, we publish all of my bets that I make and I'm by no means a punting genius or anything like that. I'm just a normal punter that loves his racing. And uh, we publish all my bets. And if you basically get a bigger P&L than me on the day, you scoop your share of the pot. So if I do my absolute bollocks, then you'll probably win about 10 quid. Uh, all you need to do is make a small profit and you'll make the money. But if I, uh, if I get a bit lucky and uh, I win so 200, 300 quid from my 100 pound bank, I, I can only bet 100 pounds, uh, then, then you could win anything up. So I think our biggest beat, beat Benson dividend was about 450 quid. Um, for anyone who made, I think, £300 profit that day, they got an extra £400 for beating me. So, yeah, it's basically just a different way of looking at a day's punting. And, um, yeah, for, for better or worse, I seem to be the face of it for the tote. Um, I think literally just came out of the fact that Beat Benson was alliterative and, and I felt eminently beatable. And people wanted to beat me because I've just got one of those faces, I think. But <laughs> is that, that just for the, uh, the big meetings or is it a regular? Yeah, no, so it's, it's basically all the big meetings throughout the season. Um, on the flat, it's all the whirlpool meetings. Uh, and then on the jumps, it's all the main meetings you'd think of, uh, most of which are Saturdays, but then obviously you have the Cheltenhams and the DRFs of this world and, and we'll run them every day of that. But yeah, it's just basically whenever there's good enough racing, we'll, we'll put it on. And who's come out top, the punters or Benson? <laughs> Always the punters. Uh, sometimes I do better, better than, uh, than not, but um, I'm actually small up across all of the tournaments, which um, I didn't see coming, if I'm honest. I, uh, I would have backed myself over the jumps, and I was small down, and I wouldn't have backed myself over the flat, and I'm medium up. So there you go. I mean, I don't even know how my own punting is. So. <laughs> right, we'll talk about the total a bit more, bit more later, yeah. but you started your working life as a city boy. So I've always looked at the city really as the sort of more respectable rich man's betting ring. Yeah, I, I, I can definitely see why you'd think that. I think that's probably what attracted me to it. Uh, yeah, in the, in the sort of trying to, trying to do good by my parents, trying to be a professional, trying to be a grown-up really, I thought that was probably where I should, should go. And uh, yeah, you know, I enjoy the analytical side of it. Um, I didn't necessarily always enjoy the subject matter. Um, I, I've always been interested by risk and risk management. It sounds a bit of a wanky turn of phrase, but always enjoyed the idea of taking risks and the rewards that could come with that. And the city is a great example of that. Um, but so is punting. <laughs> yeah, but you, so you did the, you know, you did the grown up thing. You went to university yeah. and studied economics, which I suppose is the, the, the go-to uh, degree for exactly. the city. So yeah. you, you stuck it all out and then how were you when you started the city? Uh, so I was 21 when I started in the city, worked in the city for sort of six years. Um, and that was actually how I came to meet Alex Frost, who uh, founded the tote, well, founded the UK tote group and bought the tote. Um, and I got into working for the tote through Alex by supporting him in, in the transaction to buy the business and, and things like that. So, um, you know, I can't entirely look back on my time in the city with with regret because it, it opened the doors that allowed me to, to work for the tote, so. Okay, well I want to go back to your university days because oh, yeah. as always I ask people to tell me a bit about themselves and I was, my sort of ears and my eyes pricked up a bit when it said that you paid for your university drinking and we all <laughs> assume that that's quite copious. 
I think you can. I think you can tell by the state of me <laughs> that it was it was copious. <laughs> but you paid for it by punting, so you must have been quite a good punter. So what were you what were you betting on after, when you were at uni? Yeah, so it, it was it was PGA Tour golf actually, and it was um, it sounds very grandiose to be like oh, I paid for my university by doing it, but it was really just I had so much time um, that I probably should have been studying, but um, I seemed to spend it all staying up late and watching watching PGA Tour golf and. Uh, it was at a time where on the PGA Tour website there was all these stats available, you know, whether it was, you know, strokes gained or the, some of the more niche stats, you know, scrambling and putting and things like that. But there was plenty of intangible stuff which wasn't available. Um, loads of it is now, but it, at the time it wasn't. And it's things like how players played on certain green types, how they played in the wind, how they played on certain course setups, you know, classical or parkland courses, how they played in certain regions and times of year and things like that. And basically, I just kept a little spreadsheet. It, you could probably call it a glorified model, but no, it was just a spreadsheet, really, with, with uh, so around the 200, 225 players that, that were playing regularly on the tour, and just a rating from, from 1 to 10 on, on, on each of them, how they played on bent grass, on bent purr, on purr on Bermuda, all that kind of stuff, how they played in the wind, that was just straight up 1 to 10, and basically just gave everyone a rating on this more sort of nebulous, con or these more nebulous concepts. And the idea was just to try and find players who might come into it looking like they're not playing well, but they've been in unsuitable conditions. And combining that with maybe players that are going under the radar as a good fit, but aren't big names. And the idea was then to find value in the, in the sort of bigger prices on the PGA Tour and, and just basically play them. Um, and had a few accounts doing it through that. I was, it was only small, like I wasn't doing it for hundreds of pounds, I was doing it for tens of pounds. And yeah, no, it was, it was great. And then I just sort of ran out of time to put the, put the hours in. And um, also this, a lot of this information is available now. You know, there are great sites like golfbettingsystems.com, which apparently I should now be on an affiliate fee for having just mentioned it, but yeah, <laughs> it's all available. So yeah, no, it was great. It, it was, um, it was something that I, uh, I used in interviews for hedge fund trader roles um, when I didn't have the actual, the actual skill set and the actual experience. I was like, oh, well, maybe, maybe you'll accept this, you know, half-baked half uh, model in, in place. So when <laughs> yeah. you say it's on spreadsheets, I mean, I'm a real, I know very little about computers and things. So yeah. is it an automated type thing or is it literally just on the spreadsheet and you had to put your finger along and see who came out on top? So, I mean, most of the, all of the fields really were just entered by me. The, the sort of end result, I would just type in a, a weighting for each of the categories, um, and then that would spit out a ranking. Um, but most of the stuff was just entered manually with a few formulas and stuff like that. It really wasn't, it wasn't high tech, you know, but um, it sort of did, did the job. It was, I mean, I'm assuming you certainly gathered a whole lot of mates yeah <laughs> Did, was this was it ever something that you thought there might be something in this long term yeah I, d I did i thought about it but if i'm honest it, it started to take the joy out of it a bit um I, I thoroughly enjoy being right and and punting for me is the ultimate proof of that because you know you're putting your money where your mouth is but for me i also love punting because i i love having a bet like for me it's genuinely like one of my biggest leisure activities you know, if I'm watching the, the football down the pub with mates, like, I'll have a bet on it because, not because I think I'm going to win, just because I'm going to have more fun watching the game by doing it. So it slightly took that joy out of it for me. And um, yeah, I was happy enough to leave it behind, uh, as good as it was for, for that period. 
When, when you said a lot of that information is now available on them, mm. you gave the web, website a mention, yeah. does that mean it's now been extremely devalued? Yeah, I, there's, still, there's still differences there, but a lot of the pro tipsters now, um, you know, you look at likes of Ben Coley and people like that, a lot of them will have a similar approach to punting and they put up, you know, when they said put up horses, they put up, they put up these golfers who are sort of under the radar or might be valued because of X, Y, Z. So it's just like everything else in all these betting markets. It's become a bit more crowded. Uh, people have been, become a bit, more, a bit smarter um, and the market's just a bit, bit more right. Would it still work now what you were doing if you were just doing it yourself? Probably small. There definitely wouldn't be the, the, the size of edge that there was. Um, but there's still markets, you know, fixed odds prices are still markets fundamentally. And they still, over, they still overvalue recency bias and recognition bias. You know, any big name golfer will be a shorter price than they should be because Joe Bloggs in the street in the betting shops recognises them. Um, and, you know, under, under, under bet, under known uh, punters, that's not even a turn of phrase, uh, un, under known golfers, um, what will, be, will be overpriced. Now, where did you get your computer skills? I suppose these days in school, everybody learns computers to a certain extent. Is that where you, were you a, a boffin on computers? No, no, still not. Uh, a, bit of, a bit of YouTubing, a bit of uh, hoping for the best. And um, uh, nowadays, I just, uh, I've got, we've got this amazing girl called Katie Weld who works with us, um, who did, uh, did engineering at Oxford and now is wasted working in a betting company. So... I just do control alt weld and chuck it over the fence to her and she figures it out. <laughs> now, the, the, um, the city, you, you say you're drawn to it for your, from your, when you make your parents happy mm. or whatever. It's often seen as a bit of a closed shop to be, get into the city. Yeah. So, I mean, what was your route in, what was your route in there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fully understandable why. Uh, nepotism has been rife in the city and many industries for, for years and, and the city's no different. I mean, I, I got in by applying for a, an internship at a sort of small equity research business, uh, got that internship and then they offered me a full-time job once I, once I left. Um, it definitely helped that like I did work experience when I was 17 through connections of my dad and things like that. Like, I, I would be mad to say that, that I had the same chance as, as, you know, I went to public school, like as someone off, uh, out of the state school education system, you know, I've been very fortunate with all those sorts of opportunities. Um, but ultimately the city is fundamentally meritocratic. If you aren't good enough, you won't, you won't do it. So definitely there were doors that were open to me that probably wouldn't have been open to everyone, but you still have to walk through them and you still have to walk the walk. So yeah, no, I was fortunate, but um, yeah, it's, it's still meritocratic. And it's, I mean, very similar to the betting ring, as in you study the form, yeah. but the, you know, the, the form, yeah. you make financial decisions on the basis of your research, and then you'll mm. firm profit or loss on the back of that. So yeah. is it fundamentally the same? Uh, it's, there are definite similarities, and you get massive read across in the types of characters. Um, well, certainly traditionally in the city types of characters, the city has changed more to being significantly more model and algorithm driven and very much a data science approach rather than a, a sort of feel and touch and, and risk uh, loving approach. So it's gone from risk loving to risk avoidance. Um, I think the, 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 the punting world, especially the pro punting world is going that way as well. 
Um, it's sort of the natural progression, I guess, isn't it, to move from inside info and, and sort of, uh, you know, whispers and, and, and all that kind of stuff to just pure trading on knowns and, and finding a reg by being smarter than everyone else, not by knowing more. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely a worthy comparison, but there are still differences, I'd say. Uh, I interviewed um, Bob Cooper a while back, Sir Bob. Sir Bob. And he started out in the city. Yeah. And he said there was most floors had their own bookmaker. Yes. But his was uh, disgusting when he asked him for £2.50 each way. I mean, was there quite a big punting on the horses and stuff, sort of? Kind of. Coaching? I mean, with, with the greatest respect to Sir Bob, one of the great broadcasters, we, we worked in the city in slightly different eras. And, um, you know, there was, still, there was still a big punting culture. But it's, I would say, more so football. Um, and the, the horses, they, people, Cheltenham Ascot, they'd love a tip. And that was sort of where I came in. And I used to sort of write up little blurbs for every day of Ascot and every day of Cheltenham. But realistically, like the general popularity of racing, yeah, it slightly moved away. The appetite for betting was still there, but racing less so, more so football, golf, that kind of thing. The golf, the golf actually came in handy. I was able to help a few people out there. <laughs> was that uh, career progressing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I certainly wasn't going to do it by being good at my job. <laughs> right, but your mind was already on the racing and not yeah. the FT index. We're going to talk about that next. Yeah. Okay, Jamie. Now, we mentioned at the end of the last part that your mind was already on the racing and not the FT index. Uh, you told me that you became involved in a syndicate of city types. <laughs> Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, no, that was, um, that was sort of a mixture through my, my dad um, and through some other friends of mine. And it was, it was great crack. Uh, so they started off with, with a horse called Treaty of Paris, who, who won the Aiken uh, before then being sold to Hong Kong. And uh, yeah, the horses with, with Henry Candy. And then, we, then I sort of got more involved after that. I missed, missed the, big, the big ticket. But uh, we had some great fun along the way. We had horses, um, who did we have? We had Queen of Time, uh, Son of Africa, Noble Peace, you know, so a, lot of, a lot of really good, I mean, they had another one which I wasn't personally involved in, but we, we, we were all sort of a big, big group anyway, called Greenside, who many people might know, who ran at every big sort of seven furlong, six furlong mile handicap, um, and was a great servant, um, you know, 6,000 pound. Uh, Dubawi. So, you know, you get the idea of sort of where we were shopping. We, we weren't at the higher end. We were very much down the bottom. And, you know, working with Henry has been one of the great joys of, of my life because, geez, he is some man. He is a, a horseman of, of unrivaled insight. Um, and I've learned a lot from him, albeit not in a way that I can ever replicate, but just in a way that's been magnificent to, to see firsthand. Right. Well, I've got Henry Candy. I remember being at Salisbury one day and Henry Candy came to the rails and had a bet. And the next second, the rails were deserted, <laughs> with floor men and bosses running off to get their Christmas money. Yeah. And he had that bigger reputation. When he, and he didn't bet for often. When he did bet, everybody just wanted to follow him in. And was that sort of punting sort of passed on to you guys? You want to be on this? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a whole, like you say, there's a whole load of city types and we all like a bet. And... We, we sort of tried to have a few, have a few uh, punts over the years. I mean, we never really had any sort of like legendary one, as it were. As it were, but we we certainly had a, had a few. Um, we had uh, yeah one at thirty threes that that bolted up, and I mean, Candy, when Candyman knows, he knows. Um, sadly, so so do the stable lads. <laughs> um, so you don't always nick the price. 
Um, but yeah, no, Hen Henry would be as shrewd an operator as there is. And um, I, I mean, I'll never ever forget the way that he dealt with Lamato, for instance, you know, who came from Richard Hannon was a complete head case. And I remember being at, at Kingston Warren one morning and Henry walked into Lamato's stable. Lamato's squealing and trying to bite everyone and literally you couldn't get within a meter of his box. And he just opens it up, you know, Henry all 78 years of him or however, he was, however old he was at the point, just walks in, flicks him on the nose and he goes, now are you going to be a good boy today or am I going to have to deal with you? And this horse just sits upright. Yes sir, no sir, three bags full sir. It was extraordinary. And I genuinely believe no, no other trainer could have got Lamato to do what he did. So yeah, it's been a wonderful experience working with, you know, I say working with Henry, having horses with Henry. And um, I love seeing him with Ascot just now. Yeah, you know, he was delighted with Twilight Calls, and I just any any good horse that he he can ever have is is a good thing for racing. And is that so? You still continue? Have you still got in, in, interests? Uh, no, no more interests. Um, our last one uh, was a horse called Sovereign Duke, um, who who we've sold on. But uh, no, I still still pop I still pop down to to Kingston Warren. The lads have have still got a couple with with Henry, one called Araminta, who looks potentially really smart filly. So um, yeah, I just I'll, for, I'll forever try try and see see the Candy Man. Now your dad was involved in that in that syndicate, and you tell me your granddad was also a racing man. So how involved were they? Yeah, so my my dad was involved in the form of just being a a larry larry punter, um, and you know the old bankers bonuses in the nineties. I think he he single handedly kept Labrooks afloat. Um, in fact, in one of the many times that he professed to give up gambling, I think Labrooks issued a profit warning on the same day. Um, and, and my granddad was an equally poor punter, uh, despite working in racing. He was a, he was a journalist. He uh, was the scout for the Daily Express for a while and a professional wrongin. Um, not the best father, grandfather, um, but he certainly had some stories. Um, but yeah. Can you, can you tell us anything about being a professional wrongin? <laughs> well, it, it mostly revolved around uh, being perceived to be great company, but leeching and living off uh, uh, people with a lot more money than, than himself. So the Sangsters and, and, and people like that uh, were sort of, Robert was very much his fairy godfather, um, who, who subsidised an incredibly unhealthy lifestyle um, and some very bad betting. <laughs> Um, now, how did you, so I'm assuming your interest grew from, yeah. from that association with your, uh, your yeah. granddad? Yeah, it did. It, it's funny, I, I, I was never really that interested in racing. I was always surrounded by it in a sort of one degree removed way. Um, and I was, uh, to be fair, I was a cricket boffin for, for ages. And um, I wouldn't have been able to tell you a horse, but I would have been able to tell you Curtly Ambrose's average in the last test series, you know, that kind of thing. But then when I was sort of about 16 and, and started to frequent uh, a, a local Labbrooks, I suddenly realised, oh, you can punt these things. And then suddenly I completely transformed my view of racing and I suddenly became uh, a lot more interested than I was before. Uh, I particularly remember sort of sneaking off in between lessons to watch uh, Voipur Estedes win the champion chase. I think I backed him at like six to one or something like that, you know, hardly making a million, but I just... The excitement of seeing the horse and seeing some Chuck Daunton's flowing locks, you know, lead, lead out uh, across the line. I just remember going, God, you know, I quite like this. <laughs> so had you, had you already sort of de developed an interest in the mechanics of it, sort of form study and doing it properly? Yeah, kind of. Um, I, I was more sort of finger just 
picking out various bits and bobs, really not quite understanding why I was picking what I was picking. But then obviously I started to go, right, well, I, I need to learn more about this. And then as soon as you delve into the, the, the sort of form analysis of it all, you know, whatever, how, how long, however long ago that was, 16 years ago, um, I, I, probably, I probably know as little now as, as I did then, but I know so much more, if you, if you know what I mean. You can never know it all. Um, and it's just, fat. it's a never ending puzzle. Now, Cheltenham 2011 is cited by you as the catalyst yeah. for your uh, total love of the sport. Absolutely. Generic, uh, generic memory number 307 of every sort of 30 something racing fan is the 2011 Cheltenham Gold Cup. It was my first uh, day at the festival that I could have gone to because school would always clash with it. And yeah, Corto, Denman, and, and Long Run jumping the second last together in the Gold Cup, unbelievable. And uh, Corto was a horse that, that sort of firmly was my idea of the best horse I'd ever seen and would ever see. Uh, yeah, I'd probably still stand by that now, actually, to be fair. But yeah, that was unbelievable. And from that moment on, I just went, that's me, done. That was when it went from the interest to an obsession. And I haven't missed a day at the festival since, um, for better and for worse. Well, now, just to, we'll talk about your punting, back to the algorithms and risk management, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Has that put you in good stead for your punting now that you're really taking it seriously? Yeah, it has in that I know what I'm meant to do and, and I do enjoy being disciplined at times, but really I still see punting as, a, as, as crack, you know, as fun. And ultimately, if, if across the year I can pay for silly punting with sensible punting and break even and maybe small up and have a couple of big wins then I consider that a, a, a job well done. Like I say, towards the end of the, my time punting the golf at uni, I just found it a bit joyless. And there are other ways to try and make money. And for me, punting was, was so much fun that if done sensibly where I wasn't losing, but I could sort of find ways to, to make it pay roughly, if not, um, if not just break even, then I thought that was a wonderful result. Is that really how you feel? Or are you just setting the bar low so you're not disappointed? There's you definitely, make money every year. There's definitely a small element of that. That I, I, I would probably be small up every year. But uh, in context of sort of percentage ROIs, it's sort of single figures. Um, and if it's a bad year and I break even, still happy. It's as, soon as, it's as soon as you start losing control of your staking that you don't quite know where you are and you start chasing. I never want to do that. I, I, I normally... I never really chase, actually. It's not just, a, I just don't enjoy it. So while you're a spreadsheet, you know exactly where you are to the last no. penny sort of person, punting-wise? No. <laughs> I don't have a clue. No, I look every so three months on, on sort of various betting accounts and try to work out what my win-loss is. But yeah, no, broadly, just let it all tick over and sort of weigh it up at the end of the year. <laughs> okay, now we, we talked in the beginning that you, you know, this Beat Benson thing has become quite a thing. Yeah. And if pe too many people beat Benson, it costs your employers a nice few quid so you have to take it pretty seriously so yeah. what angle is there a different angle obviously I assume mm. you don't bet on everything if you're personal punting which you have yeah. to with Beat Benson exactly but what is your angle from a personal point of view when you're trying to fathom out what's going to win a race yeah I've always been just a pretty traditional four-man list if you know what I mean like I, I, I definitely take some some broader comment from yards about when they think they have a good horse, then bearing that in mind, as a, even if the horse doesn't necessarily fulfill that talent, keeping that in mind that it might still be a good one. But to be honest, the person I'd probably, I mean, person I 
would consider myself thought process wise definitely way 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 less good but it's sort of similar way to how Paul Keeley thinks about things yeah you look at horses last winning marks you look at if there are excuses why they maybe haven't run up to that since try and figure out why they might this time and and see if they're weighted to win that kind of thing collateral form those sorts of angles it's by no means a unique edge I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel or anything like that um I just, I'm just trying to make a little bit of money. <laughs> so you said that if you're in a pub watching something, yeah. you want to have a bet on that. Yeah. Would you just have a bet purely on a whim, purely for fun, or would you have done a little bit of research no. to back it up? So you, no, do, you are a recreational punter yeah, yeah. to a certain extent. I completely. I think, I think everyone um, who, who punts can, can go through sort of every stage of a punter. Like, I don't think you, can, you have to be one type. You know, I can, in a day, be all types. You know, I, I can have a bet that I've been, I've had a horse in my horse tracker for four years and it's finally the conditions are there and I'll have a sort of max bet on that. And then I can be in the pub in the evening watching, you know, the basketball could be on and I could just be like, I don't have a clue. Does anyone know anything here? And then they'll go, no, I'll look, fine. I'll have a fiver on the orange team and everything in between. Um, doesn't that doesn't it sort of play on your mind that you spent hours on the form book to chisel out a profit and then you've just tossed it away on a... I, I honestly consider the things almost independent. Like, that's the same, the fiver on the basketball is the same as buying an extra pint. And then the, the sort of, you know, 100 quid and the horse that I've been waiting for for ages is a separate thing entirely. Um, you know, it doesn't all have to be lumped into one in my head. Is, is there any sort of thinking, oh, I've been having a few too many of these yeah. pub nights and then you sort of knock it on the head for a bit and yeah, just concentrate on winning money again? Yeah, definitely. You know, you never want to get out of control and... I try and always keep a keep a lid on that sort of stuff. I mean, really, the, my thing is my staking has never really been that big. Um, my max bets have probably grown a bit, but my silly bets have stayed about the same. You know, I, I'm not betting 500 quid on on a silly bet. I'm still betting a five or a tenner, and I get the the same amount of enjoyment. In fact, more because I don't feel the downside risk. Um, it just it heightens my enjoyment of what I'm doing. But you would bet 500 quid on a on one you really fancied. Not as much as 500, maybe 250 would be my max bet. But yeah. But so you, you, overall, you wouldn't describe yourself as a disciplined punter? It, it... Not particularly, no. no, no, no. I mean, I, I'm disciplined in, in my lack of discipline. Um, <laughs> <laughs> if that makes any sense. <laughs> Jamie, I've got to admit, halfway, not even halfway through, when you were talking about your granddad, it suddenly dawned on me, Eureka like. <laughs> your granddad was the famous, infamous Charles Benson. Infamous. <laughs> I've read a lot about him in Robert Sankster's own book, and it suddenly dawned on me. So for anybody that's watching that's screaming, <laughs> I bet that's Charles Benson, it is Charles Benson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it, what, what a granddad to have. I mean, he must have been... Yeah, I mean, like, to be fair, he was a bit of a wanker, really, as a granddad. <laughs> uh, he, was, he's, he was always very self-involved and, and things like that. It was, it's been great working in racing and hearing stories about him from other people and people speak of him very fondly albeit with a small sort of wink and, and a nudge to, to know that he might not always have been as charming as he as he made out but yeah no it's 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 been it's been quite funny it's sort of not it's not something that I readily volunteer because um my mum points out to me that that I have some tendencies and characteristics similar to Charles Benson, but then lots of other things very dissimilar. 
So uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't ever want to be lumped in with the Charles Benson bandwagon. But yeah, no, it's been it's been fun, and the stories are amazing and and of their very of their time. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's unique. Well, it must have been a lot of fun to be around for Robert Sankster to be quite happy to, like you say, sort of subsidise some of the uh, yeah some of the lifestyle. But it wasn't all fun and games, was it? Because you told me that both your dad and your granddad were at some point addicted gamblers. Yeah. Um, did that sort of ruin any passion that they had for the sport, and more importantly, you? I mean, I think it's impossible for it to not have a negative impact on, on one as a punter if you're losing material, meaningful amounts of money. You know, the whole idea of punting is it's meant to be fun. Well, for me anyways, it's meant to be fun. It's meant to enhance my enjoyment of it. Um, and, you know, seeing them, particularly my dad. You know, I wasn't that close to my granddad, as I said alluded to but particularly seeing my dad you know watch these races and I know that he's had his absolute bollocks on and just seeing his his horse get beat and just him being crestfallen it was it was quite tough to see firsthand and you know he, he's been magnificent since he, he hasn't had a punt in six years and so I've been to Gamblers Anonymous meetings with him and stuff like this and I've learned a whole load about you know, probably probably understanding more about what I saw as a sort of a kid growing up around the negatives of of punting and the impact that that can have on people's lives and the way it makes you change as a person. You know, you start to hide things, you start to be more secretive, and um, it was certainly something I've been very conscious of all the way through to to make sure I avoid that um, and make sure and help other people avoid it as well. Uh, we'll talk about that in a bit, but I mean, I'm interested how if it's not too painful for you. How? No, no, no. How badly did it impact? Because if you're a family that's relatively affluent, yeah, did it mean that you had to change schools or the fees weren't paid or anything that drastic? No, nothing, nothing that that drastic. I mean, it clearly put a massive strain on my parents' marriage um, and all that kind of stuff. I, I think you get to a point where where you're quite good at hiding it. You know, you sort of. The, let the kids carry on as they as they are, and I'm sure there were there were more machinations going on under behind the scenes that I wasn't wasn't fully aware of. But no, we were fortunate in that regard in that it wasn't marriage ending or or sort of um, or life ending, you know. Um, but it was definitely, you know, dad dad will be the first to admit he'll be like, God, I'm so much happier for not betting, and it it, it has been, I, I'm not. I'm glad I, I've gone through that experience before coming and working in gambling because it's really opened my eyes, um, especially attending gamblers and honors meetings. Yeah, tell us about that. Why did you go along? Was it to make sure he went? Or no, no, no. It, it's, so every so six months they have the, the sort of the open sessions where you can bring the, the people, the attendees can bring along family um, and friends and things like that. So I went along to a couple of sessions with him there, sort of um, support him. And, you know, you just it's a whole range. Of people and a whole range of different stages, with different levels of, of of addiction, and but the commonality is the same. It's the damage that that being out of control with your punting can do, and it's the same as it being out of control with drinking, or being out of control with drugs, or even being out of control with shopping. You know, anything like this where you compulsively do something, it is, you know, remar remarkably damaging if let go unchecked. So with becoming, I've had people say it to me before that they became good gamblers because they were compulsive gamblers. Mm. So is the fact that you enjoy the actual act of punting yeah. so much yeah. 
driven you to become good at that? Yeah, I think so, because nobody likes to be wrong and nobody likes to feel like an idiot. And as much as talking about backing Boy Porostelos to win the champion chase, I knew that I'd got more lucky than I had got right, if you know what I mean. So it was sort of from there that I was like, cool, well, if I'm going to lose, I kind of want to know why I've lost and be able to justify in my own head why I've lost, but never, never to a position where I would be uncomfortable. Um, and I, you know, I remember one time I had an anti-post bet when I was at uni on long run to win the 2012 Gold Cup, actually, after that. And I'd had 100 quid on at 7-2 to two anti-post, very uh, proper mug punting. And 100 quid was a load of money, that still is. Um, and for I had two months on before, and for that two months, I was miserable, just waiting for him to do a leg. And then he, he, he you know, went and he got beat, and I was honestly relieved when he got beat. So I was like, oh, thank God, at least that's over. And I'll, I'll always remember that feeling. I never wanted to be in that position again. Now, how do you feel, I mean, now you're working in the gambling industry, yeah. as do I, <laughs> so we get paid ultimately on the back of people losing their money. Um, uh, not the tote now. <laughs> uh, but potentially some of those yeah, people, yeah. those losers are suffering, Absolutely. you know, as, you, as or worse than your dad and your granddad did. So how, how does, how do you... Reconcile that. Yes. Right? It's, it's difficult. And I think it would be easy to, to accuse me of a sort of cognitive dissonance, um, which I think would be not unfounded. But it's just, I've always tried to be very, very conscious of it. And, you know, the tote being a pool is, you know, you still have winners and losers within that. But the idea is that, you know, you're, you're not directly profiting from people's losses. Um, and particularly things like tote fantasy, which, which I've sort of uh, founded, that is a way of trying to give people enjoyment and, and fun and engagement throughout a whole day's racing with the chance to win big, but also whilst sort of maintaining a responsible level of spending. Um, and I'm not saying that seven quid, that, you know, there are lots of people out there for whom seven grand is a responsible level of spending. It's all relative. But for me, it's about trying to make sure that punting is enjoyed in the right way. You know, if, if, you're, an alcohol, if you're an alcoholic, you need to not drink. But then how many people are there out in the world that love a glass of wine? And that's sort of where I'm trying to get to with it all. So you said that given, you told me that given that you witnessed firsthand what you did, mm. that you feel you're uniquely placed to be a force for positive change. So what changes are needed? Now you've said that you know people can do it and have fun. Yeah. But you think there's changes to be done. So what do you think should be done? I mean, I think I think the gambling industry is moving in the right direction, courtesy of things like the white paper and, and things like that. I think for a long time it has been unchecked and unfettered in what in the practices it's been allowed to do you know i look particularly at the the way that the sort of the bigger bookies would have pursued uh would have, would have pursued people that they probably suspected were problem gamblers back in the day but there was there were no repercussions for doing so so um that's obviously something close to my heart because they definitely i saw the way that they they would look after my dad and and regularly open open accounts for him which he'd closed previously so I think it's necessary to, to move towards the, the full understanding of what people can afford to spend and how they spend it and things like that. I also don't, I don't want punting to be a bad word. 
like I've, sometimes you know I say I work for a gambling company people look at me like I'm a drug dealer or something it's like it's not it shouldn't you shouldn't be a social pariah for loving a pun it's it's just like some people love it some people hate it you know we don't all have to do it and I think trying to find ways of ticking the boxes for enjoyment for everyone who wants to have a bet is is so important and also not being shy of talking about it you know I don't think we should hide as an industry and and apologize over and over again for for liking a pun I think it's just about finding a way to make sure that we are all honest with ourselves that we're safeguarding the people in the way that we we should okay so we've we've mentioned a few times that you working with the tote yeah well, tell us all about it you've um you filled the PR role yeah and you're obviously anybody can tell you're a very personable chap I mean was that <laughs> is that what you, is that still your role or is that something you enjoy doing yes I mean I, I it was very much for lack of a better option that uh, that that sort of wheeled me out. It it was just a case of we didn't have a full time PR person, so it would either be me or Jamie Hart. We'd just get basically a Jamie who loved punting to go out and talk about racing, and I really enjoyed it. I I got to work. I've I've got to work with so many people in the racing media who I looked up to for for many years just as a fan. Um, you know, likes of Roy Delaghi and Andrew Mount and people like this, and obviously all the people that in the broader media as well and I've loved it I've absolutely loved it I've, uh, I've fumbled my way through it um, but it has never been my full-time job my full-time job is is uh, was initially part of the commercial team and now um, sort of doing my, my baby which is uh, Tote Fantasy right tell us all about the Tote Fantasy <laughs> now you're gonna have to stop me here because I could talk about this all day but yeah it's about four minutes yeah right That's quite a long time. <laughs> so it's basically uh, trying to take the DFS model, the daily fantasy sports model from the States with the likes of DraftKings and FanDuel and apply that to UK horse racing. And the... So rewind a bit because a lot of people won't know what that is. I don't. So uh, it's basically the, the, the reason why daily fantasy sports came about in the States was because they couldn't legally do sports betting. So this was a way of doing sports betting where in a similar mold to fantasy football, but on a one-day basis, you'd be given a mythical budget uh, from which you'd have to pick players in baseball, NFL, basketball, that kind of thing. And you scored points depending on how they performed, the individual players performed. And then you were just on a leaderboard and then the winner was a big jackpot and then sort of the top 20% would make money on a gradiented level. And it was a way for, for people to bet on sport where fixed odds wasn't allowed. So it, it, it started out out of necessity, but what it did was it sort of built this thriving industry that they've now legalised sports betting properly and now they're just desperately trying to convert everyone into, into sports betting and fixed odds and casino and things like that. Because undoubtedly on, a, on an average return per customer basis, it's much more uh, profitable to have people betting fixed odds and casino because you get the money out of them quicker. Um, but Daily Fantasy Sports still retains this incredible engagement uh, ability and it's, it's still profitable in itself. It's a, it's a bet, you pay for it, as a takeout, so it's it's a standalone revenue generative product. But my thing was more like I want to build this game for me, and and I hope that other people will play it. But I'm sure if I want to play it this badly, there will be other people who want to play it. But this is revolves around horse racing, and this so this is revolves around horse racing. And the reason why nobody would have done it over here is because it wouldn't necessarily be cost effective. Because why would you get someone who is already betting horses fixed odds with you? to play this other product where the stake's a bit lower and your ability to earn money off that customer is less. 
So I understand why people haven't done it, but it also means that that doesn't, <laughs> especially in the world of responsible gambling and, and the direction of travel we're moving in, that doesn't mean it shouldn't be, be done. And like I say, I built it because I, I was just obsessed by the idea and I, and I love playing it. We sort of started out as a spreadsheet amongst friends and it's now, uh, you know, it's now going great guns. Um, you know, it's sort of growing every, every, every week and uh, I think in this jump, coming jump season we should see some, some decent numbers. So what sort of numbers are we talking about at the moment? So we've had about, we sort of properly launched in February um, and we've had about 5,000 players play it. We've had just a tad over half a million of turnover. So it's, it's, you know, from a standing start with very, very limited marketing budget, I'm pretty chuffed. It really just speaks to the strength of the game. I've been very lucky to build it with some really, really talented people um, at the tote and they've done unbelievable things with it. And yeah, it's exciting. I, I, uh, <laughs> proper plug time. I would love anyone listening to this just to give it a try because I think it's excellent. All right, finally, I was going to say you've worked hard and struggled to find your passion in the city. Something you said to me, not yeah. something I've just pulled out the air. Yeah. Um, so have you found what you're looking for now, but in the betting industry? Yeah, I mean, I absolutely love it. I mean, I, I dread my bosses seeing this because it's a great excuse to not pay me. But I literally, this is as much a hobby as anything else. There are many days where it's still work, but yeah, I absolutely love it. You know, I get to talk about racing. I get to build this, this game that I love and, and I'm fascinated by it and improve it and, and see people play it and enjoy it. Um, yeah, it's, it's deeply rewarding. Um, and it's certainly, certainly I've found my passion, yeah, put it that way. And have you looked at all as to what's next or is this it for the time being? Hopefully th th this is it. I'm, I'm really focused on making fantasy uh, the best it can be and growing it and, and helping the totes succeed as well. You know, there's a, it's a great and very honourable mission that the, the totes setting out to do, you know, to try and improve the funding mechanism of racing and, and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm keen to kick on and, and, and help grow the sport. But, uh, yeah, really, I'm just, uh, I'm already thinking about my bloody Cheltenham anti-postburg. <laughs> you better get back to studying the form and on that. Yeah. Jamie Benson, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon.